0: And Late Kick is live. It is Thursday night, April 7th, the year of our Lord 2022. When society tries to make you the bad guy, don't fight it, just go with it. We're going to talk a lot about that on tonight's show. Jam packed high atop downtown Nashville, Tennessee. Favorite decade in the history of this sport? Could be the 30s, could be the 2000s. We will discuss. Is Ryan Day the next Kirby Smart? Your question, not mine. We're opening up the mailbag tonight. Got some interesting things, though, to say about Ryan Day. Also, Let's just look ahead, why don't we, to the next decade or so. Who's likely to emerge? Had a question about Blue Bloods, and maybe not who's the next Blue Blood, but which programs could be the next ones to pop off. We are very excited to have you in here tonight. Now, a thing you need to know about me as we kick the show off, and I've talked about this before. I don't like parties. I don't even celebrate my own birthday. I try not to even let people know it's my own birthday. But... Stats and Info tells me that it is our 250th episode. And while I'm anti-party, management did want us to have a party. So from 7.01 to 7.01 in 30 seconds, we have a party planned. We're just going to do it right here on air. So get your cameras ready. We have the graphic. Yeah, we have the graphic. We have the balloons. Yes, we have the balloons. We have the production minion here. Okay, we do. Here you go, folks. Enjoy it. Let me back up. Take your pictures. Three, two, one. And that's it. All right, we will see you at show number 300. Sincerely though, we do appreciate you being tuned in. It's just that we're kind of like Nick Saban around here. We're focused on the process a lot more than the results. So 250, did we start it in Brentwood? What, Colin? We started in Brentwood, didn't ask permission to start the show. We just kind of started it. And here we are, show number 250. Um, as we enter, we have done a lot of things that we should not have been able to do in a mere 250 shows. That's on you, not on us. So we would inflate the balloons all the way if you guys were here in the studio. But as it is, that's the end of our celebration. They're watching us tonight, believe it or not, in Yokosuka, Japan. Had to look up the pronunciation on that one. I think I'm right. Sioux City, Iowa. I'm right on that one. Denver, Colorado, Hot Springs, Arkansas. They're all tuned in. Thank you, guys. Let's dive into the show. Why mess with what's been working? We're going full mailbag tonight. Having a lot of fun with this. How about this first question? We're even going to have a couple of them on the screen at the same time one of you asked today about what i think about jimbo fisher kind of saying texas a m is going to be the villain in recruiting and then another person asked who's in line to be the next villain in college football thanks for all you do appreciate the questions both of you there so before i answer this if you don't know what's being referenced here you know Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M, they just signed the highest-rated class of all time in the history of the 24-7 sports team recruiting rankings. You know that they had more five stars in this class than the entire Big Ten conference. They had more five stars in this class, twice as many, actually, as the entire ACC. We talked about that the other night. Well, Jimbo Fisher, I think either yesterday or the day before, after one of their spring scrimmages and, and spring practices was asked about Texas A&M and how a lot of people are throwing around different allegations and putting different labels on AM, villain, bad guy. Well, here's what Jimbo Fisher had to say about it, and I'll talk about it on the other side. Just have to get used to it. Just have to keep doing it. Have to keep recruiting. But it ain't like we've been we've been in the top five or six every year, four or five or six every year. And I, and then, no, you know, whatever they they feel and say, I don't I don't worry about somebody else unless they. And you know, like I said before, the you know, all the things that went on had nothing to do with NIL. Had nothing to do with all the other, and because that's what they were accusing us of. And I think NIL and transfer portal is truly affecting college football. But that wasn't the case with us. That's why I said what I said on the other. So I don't know, you have to ask them more so than you have to ask me. Well, hopefully, hopefully we'll keep doing it and making them all, man. Own it, lean into it. The world needs heels. WWF could have never risen to power without a foil for Hulk Hogan in the 80s. Triple H did his best work as a heel in the late 90s, in my humble opinion embrace the heel mentality. Let me ask you a question. If you're a Texas A&M fan, you should follow his lead and not care what anyone else thinks about you. But to everyone else out there who's kind of still trying to figure out how to process Texas A&M, didn't you guys tell me for the longest time you wanted someone new at the table? Didn't you tell me you were tired of the same three or four programs? And it's rhetorical. The answer is yes. Because I keep noticing in my DMs, some of you who asked me a year ago, who's going to break up the monotony in this sport, are now asking, who does Texas A&M think they are? Whomst are they to step up and secure a number one overall recruiting class? Now, a lot of you have a problem not with so much the what, that being them at number one. You have a problem, perceptionally, as to how you think they went about doing it. Well, here's what I'll say about that. No one ever brings me proof of anything. They just bring me message board allegations. I have yet to have hardcore evidence that any of you would have the stones to hold up in court against Texas A&M recruiting. I know what the whispers are. I get it. But here's the thing. There's a new world that we live in now. They embraced it, kind of like Georgia in 2017 embraced the early signing day. And they ran circles around everyone and finished with the number one class. A&M did not tiptoe into NIL. They dove in. I'm not criticizing them all that much because I don't think I'd do anything different than they've done. So I, I'm not going to be overly critical of it. Uh, but even if I was, who cares? Like what Jimbo Fisher just said, who cares? Someone today accused me of being a little giddy when I talk about a and recruiting. And I didn't disagree, because I kind of am, because it's what everyone else out there claims to want. There's new blood. Texas A&M hadn't, to my knowledge, they haven't won the SEC yet. They haven't won a national championship yet. So yeah, that's a villain, because apparently no one likes them. USC is the same way. Lincoln Riley is gonna be the same way on the West Coast. No one likes you, tough, don't worry about it. I think one of the biggest wastes of time that you could, you could start to worry about if you're a head coach is trying to be liked. Who are you really accountable to? If you're Lincoln Riley or Jimbo Fisher, who are you really accountable to? You're accountable to your administration, your athletic director, your, uh, your president, You're accountable to the folks inside your bubble. You're accountable to your fans, to your donors. Uh, You're accountable to alumni. But these are all folks who largely approve of the practices at USC and Texas A&M, respectively, right now. So if those folks are happy, nobody cares. Nobody cares what someone in Alpharetta, Georgia thinks. All due respect to um, Alpharetta, no one cares what people there think about Texas A&M, or at least you shouldn't. You worry about who you're accountable to, and if the rest of them don't like you, College football is all the much better for it, in my opinion, Uh, because I don't don't ever remember a time where you would say this sport is at its apex, at its peak, and there wasn't a bad program out there, a bad guy or two. You need someone to root against. You remember the early 2000s? We're going to talk about this a little later. Remember the early 2000s? I've spoken about this before as a kid growing up in the South, how we looked at USC and Pete Carroll. That was like a dirty word coming out of your mouth. Couldn't stand them, despised them. That was good. That wasn't a bad thing. That was a good thing. So yeah, I, I guess your villains would be Texas A&M. I guess your villains would be Lincoln Riley and USC, especially if they end up like think if if USC and Lincoln Riley won the Pac-12 this year, imagine what that would do on the West Coast, and then it would send a ripple effect throughout college football because obviously in our world, the media world, everybody's looking for any excuse, 24/7, pun intended, to talk about USC. If they give you a reason. You're going to be drowning in it, and you'll go right back to remembering what it was like in the early 2000s. College football needs villains. I have no problem with it. I would love to be in that position because they don't ever hate you when you're winning six games. They don't. Now, a lot of you are resorting to that that age-old go-to when a program is in the building process of, well, yeah, A&M can sign all these kids they want to just to go 8-4, and just to go 9-4. and I don't think most of you believe that. If I were to make you bet your next month's salary one way or the other, will Texas A&M win double-digit games over the next three years? You're not betting no. Be real with yourself. You know they're about to win. Now, are they going to win a championship? That's an entirely different discussion. But you guys don't really think that they're going to max out at eight or nine wins. Not even the most hardcore of A&M critics believe that. And if you do, I'll be happy to place the bet with you. I'm right here earpiece is coming out again i'm right here on that one uh, let's move on because this next question kind of i think is going to wrap back around to this but it's going to expand to a lot more programs too uh, trent in fort myers florida what are the five non-blue blood programs that you think have the best chance of emerging as contenders over the next decade so i came up with five of them now, i wouldn't classify any of these as blue bloods now also you need to understand i didn't include miami here people would argue they're blue blood clemson i mean they're already there. So there are some programs that have been Blue Bloods. Texas, I'm not gonna put them in here. Too many people would consider them a Blue Blood. Arkansas, you would not consider a Blue Blood, although there's a lot of history and pageantry around the Hogs, and they're obviously a favorite on this program. So you know what's going on there with Sam Pittman. You know that we have well-documented the very unique culture and dynamic that's in place up there right now, but it's a lot more than that. It's a lot more than just feel good. They're actually a really, really good football team. Talking to someone earlier today on the phone about what they could be this year. Fast, defensively. About as fast as you will have seen Arkansas be in quite a while. They're building depth. They don't have a huge question mark like some other programs do at quarterback. But what it's doing right now, since we're talking about the next decade, is it's building this foundation on proven results. You're not having to try and convince kids, even though you're winning three games, to come play here and turn it around. They already went 9-4 and four last year. They're playing one of, if not the toughest, schedules in the country annually. This year, I think they play, what, Brigham Young, and they opening at Cincinnati. So they always challenge themselves. But Arkansas could be one of those that continues to kind of defy conventional wisdom. That's what they'll have to do, make no mistake, uh, based solely on the division they're in. They'll have to defy conventional wisdom. Arkansas is one, though, that I could see popping off. Utah already does this out in the Pac-12. It's just that you always expect them to be a good solid program. So when they are solid, it doesn't take you by surprise. So if Oregon State were giving you Utah results, it would be a bigger story. But Utah has been such a mainstay that they've been this little regional power that you think is confined to just that, a regional power. And I don't know how this would happen. I don't know how Utah would take the next step. Maybe they figure out something with Portal. Maybe they figure out something with NIL, or maybe they just become um, less a victim of the Portal era and the NIL era than some other programs out West. Maybe that, by default, is how they end up taking that next step. But what we haven't seen that we could end up seeing any given year is Utah in the playoff. We have not seen that yet. We've seen West Coast teams in the playoff, not in the last few years, but we've seen Oregon there. We've seen Washington there. We could easily see Utah there. Utah smoked Oregon twice last year and had an ultra-competitive Rose Bowl with USC, or, and they had, or Ohio State, and they had all kinds of ups and downs last year. It's a program that's always there. They're always, they're always you hear the knock, they're always knocking on the door. They're a program that's there just in case any of the other top handful of teams any given year fall off. I could see Utah taking one of those next steps. I'll tell you how it would probably happen. Picture an ultra tight quarterback battle somewhere, just pick wherever. And the guy that is wanting to transfer out of there because he's just, he's like Jack Miller that just left Ohio State and went to Florida. What if one year a Jack Miller ends up going to Utah? They've already had uh, transfers there before, but I'm saying if they, if they just hit it out of the park one time with a major quarterback transfer, that could be all it takes. They're not, they're not miles away. They're already there. Kyle Whittingham's been there forever. You want to surprise yourself? Just go look at Kyle Whittingham's Wikipedia page, how long he's been at Utah. He's been there a long time. Some of you are watching this thing with a driver's license uh, that were not you weren't born when Kyle Whittingham uh, first took over at Utah. Don't run the math there. I think that's right, though. Uh, so, Utah could be that. Let's go all the way to the East Coast. North Carolina could be this. I think North Carolina is going to give you a little delayed gratification, but I think there's eventually coming a time maybe it's under Mack Brown, maybe it's under whoever takes over when Mack Brown leaves, retires, whenever that is. But I think North Carolina is very well positioned. I think they've been well positioned for a while to be a team. They're, they're, they're very well positioned for recruiting, they have invested in infrastructure there. Their staff's very good. It's a place that people want to go play. It's a place that a lot of talented kids can stay home and play. North Carolina's in a winnable division. They're in a winnable conference for that matter. They, they've got a lot going for them. It's a very, very attractive brand. They've got a lot going for them. And I think that because a lot of people expected things from them last year and they didn't live up to your expectations and my expectations, a lot of people are going to sell on them hard this year and in the future. And I don't look at it that way. I just look at it as they underachieve, the 2021 version of North Carolina underachieve. I don't think that impacts whatsoever what they could be in 2025, let's say. So North Carolina's there. We just talked about Texas A&M. Texas A&M is probably the go-to here. It's not a traditional blue blood. They haven't racked up half a dozen national championships, but they're right there. They've got everything in spades. They've got the right head coach. They've got all the infrastructure in place. They've got bottomless resources. They've got the recruiting. I mean, they are clearly the number one answer here. I just put them at number four because we had just talked about them like a minute ago. And the fifth one's also in the state of Texas, and that's Baylor. Baylor, because of the head coach there, could be one that surprises a lot of people. I mean, who won the Big 12 last year? Do you even remember that it was Baylor? A lot of people I have found do not automatically recall, oh, that was Baylor. That was, that was that play down near the goal line. I remember I was sitting, where was I? That was SEC Championship Day. So I'm in Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I'm in the photographer's field room because I don't like to hang out in the press box for many reasons. So I'm down, I'm down in the trenches with the actual workers, and we're watching that game, and man, everyone's on pins and needles, and you get that stop at the half-yard line, and Baylor wins the Big 12. And Dave Aranda's heart rate never goes above 80 beats per minute. But that's part of the beauty of what I love about Dave Aranda. I told you the story about how we were out there in Waco for the Oklahoma Baylor game earlier that year. And, and the quote that he gave us after the game that had struck me and still stays with me, everybody's celebrating. I mean, that place is going crazy. They storm the field. And all Dave Aranda could say afterwards is, I'm really kind of disappointed that we played up this week. And what he was saying was, I'm not disappointed we won. He was saying they had just lost the week before against TCU. And his perception was, we rebounded because of that loss. Instead of just playing at a steady level every week, we were a prisoner of uh, reacting to past results. We were result oriented. I love that. I mean, that's that's the key to winning and sustaining success long term. So Arkansas, Utah, North Carolina, Texas A&M, and Baylor, I could see any of those or all of those popping off uh, a conference championship win or a playoff run over the next few years. But those are non-Blue Bloods that could become. Not Blue Bloods necessarily over a 50-year period, but they could have a little run, a little mini run in them. Next question, by the way. uh, Got a lot of people watching tonight, so I appreciate you. Uh, If you're watching, by the way, on YouTube, like the video and subscribe to the channel. That's about all I need you to do. Sam is up next. Now, Sam said, is it just the meaningful college football regular season that makes it so superior to all the other college sports and professional sports? College basketball and baseball do not capture the same game-to-game magic. I'm listening in Kingsport, Tennessee. Yes, a large part of it has to do, Sam, with the regular season. College football's most priceless commodity and college football's most precious commodity, in our opinion, is the regular season. But it's not Just the regular season. It's primarily that, but it's also pageantry and tradition. We had a time out in the newsroom, I guess we want to call this today, trying to spell pageantry. Do you ever just forget how to spell random words? Because pageantry got me today. Colin, in an alternate universe, if he existed, was laughing at me, still laughing at me, jerk. But the pageantry, however you spell it, E before A, A before E, it's great. It's something that you don't get. It doesn't get duplicated elsewhere. What I love about going to college football games or watching them on TV is there are certain layers to the spectacle that are the same today as they were 50 years ago. Sure, the stadiums are bigger, uh, the presentation is crisper. Technologically, it's a totally different level, but there are some things about an Oklahoma game that are the same today like if you're if your uncle and your dad and your granddad went to Oklahoma you're chanting some of the same things today that team is wearing the same color scheme uniform and whatnot today as they wore in 1963. I love that because that's not always the case in fact it's rarely the case in other sports so I love that for a long time I loved that in college sports we didn't really seem to value the opinion of casuals all that much. Now, unfortunately, that's changed over the last 15 or so years. The wrong voices got amplified for a little while and took us down some roads that I'm not crazy about. But I love the pageantry and tradition. But yes, Sam, I mean, it does all circle back around to the regular season. To best summarize how I feel about the regular season, I love it so much. It's such a central tenet of college football and my experience that I could go without even watching the playoff. You could take my access to the playoff away and I'd be content. I'd wanna know who won the championship. I'd be curious, yes. But this regular season stuff that we're watching right now, if you're watching on YouTube, if you just gave me that and then you made me do without the rest, I wouldn't even fight you all that much on it. I'd love to watch bowl season, but if you gave me an either or, I don't even care how big the playoff is. If you gave me playoff or regular season, 100 times out of 100, I'm taking you know, games like the Red River Shootout there that we experienced this past year and Penn State Whiteout, and a snowstorm setting in after the Michigan-Ohio State game. I'm taking that all day, every day. So, yeah, I think it is that. That's why I'm so hesitant to want to mess with it, Sam. That's why I'm so hesitant when, when someone comes at me and says something that they think makes sense, like, well, they do it in every other sport, why is college football the only sport that doesn't? You, you say that in a negative connotation, I take it as a compliment. Like as a college football fan, when people tell me college football is the only sport, not doing this or that, most of the time, I wear it as a badge of honor. I, I love that. Chances are what you're saying is part of what appeals to me about this game. So yeah, regular season, pageantry, yeah, those are two of the main reasons I think that our sport has set itself apart from the rest of the field for a long time. Next question here, leisurely pace so far. 20 minutes in, huh? Uh, This was from Raekwon. Raekwon said, what does Ryan Day need to do to get over the hump like Kirby? And this is from, what do we think that is? Matawan? Matawan, West Virginia? Somewhere in West Virginia. Thank you for watching. So this is funny. It's funny because the standard in college football is so out of whack because of Nick Saban that Ryan Day has lost five games in four years and people are asking, How does he get over the hump? He's over it. There is no hump. The only hump, quite literally, he hasn't gotten over is winning a national title. Winning a national title, this is gonna be the most obvious statement of the evening, is extremely hard. It's not like Nick Saban makes it look. It's not like Bama has made it look. People don't even need to apply that scale to any coach, much less one who is half a decade in to his head coaching tenure. Now, did he get handed a very, very privileged situation? Of course he did. Did he earn it? Of course he did. So it's not like he's, it's not like he was born on third base, contrary to allegations that have floated around the Big Ten. It's not like Ryan Day was born on third base and was not qualified to come home. They could have given that job to anyone. They chose Ryan Day. He took the job. They didn't give it to him. He took the job. The guy's lost five games in four years. And I'm being asked, how does he get over the hump? But I'm not, I'm not trashing Raekwon. There are a lot of people who think this way. There are a lot of people who are critical of Ryan Day because the standard is so insanely high. It's the same way it was with Kirby. Remember when Kirby got to the national championship game in his second year, and it was that 2017 game, and they got blown out by Alabama? No, check that. They didn't get blown out, did they? They went to overtime with Alabama in his second year. It's a bounce of a ball either way. You know how the game ended famously, but it's a bounce of a ball either way. If you've gotten to overtime of a national championship game, you were good enough to win the game. You may not win the game, but you've been good enough to win the game, obviously. But they didn't win it. And in the bottom line sort of nature of this industry, there's this Grand Canyon, perceptionally, between having won one and having not won one. And that's not reality. The caliber of coach, the level of program, There's not this huge gulf between them winning that game and them coming out on the wrong side of an overtime thriller. They're the same caliber program. But because Kirby didn't win it that night, there were folks asking down south every day that ended in why, is this just another Mark Richt? Is he underachieving? No, he wasn't underachieving. I got news for you. By the way, it was never an insult to be compared to Mark Richt. Mark Richt came that close in 2012, too. How different would Georgia football be if Mark Richt would have had one more play in his back pocket in 2012? Anyway, I'm saying that to say it's happening with Ryan Day now. I hope for his sake they can win a championship soon, because if not, he's going to have to listen to some of that same foolishness that you had to listen to about Kirby Smart. I mean, they were knocking on the door. Georgia has been in it every year aside from the first year. Even Saban had a mulligan his first year. They were in it every year, but because he hadn't won a national championship, which is so insanely hard to do. You are existing, by the way, in the same period as the greatest dynasty in the history of the sport. So the fact that you haven't won a championship your first five years as a head coach is not nearly the insult people think it is. But Kirby hadn't won one until like 10 minutes ago, so now all of a sudden he's arrived. Now all of a sudden he's great. He's no different than he was last December when he got run out of Atlanta by Alabama. He's no different, He's the same guy. He already was good, and now he's still good. Ryan Day already is good, and probably improving. Because they're very young. Nick Saban wasn't at Alabama the fifth year into his head coaching career. I can assure you of that. Um, So Ryan Day has no hump to get over, in my opinion. Like The way I view the sport, he has no hump to get over. There's nothing Ryan Day needs to prove to me. But I do understand how important championships are. I get all that. I understand that this is about results at the end of the day. But Raekwon... I don't perceive him as needing to get over a hump. So yeah, I guess he's in the best position to be the next coach to win his first title, but they're gonna be there every year. Do you put yourself in position? When we get to November, are you in position? Are your playoff hopes and Big Ten Championship hopes still alive at that point? Virtually every year, the answer to that question for Ohio State football is gonna be yes. If you can get to November, and the answer to that question is yes every year, you just you simulate this stuff enough times. You go through this enough times. You're going to win one. Maybe they'll win four, but I, they're, they're going to win one. It's not a question of if to me with Ryan Day. It is a question of when, but until we get there, because of the way the conversation gets shaped so often in this sport, there are going to be folks, even though he's got, what, five losses in four years. Four losses. Yeah, there you go. I, uh, I undersold him. You're going to have people who ask, when's Ryan Day going to win one? When's he going to get over that hump? God bless you, Ryan Day. I'm told they're paying him enough that he is able to deal with that criticism. But still, from a principled standpoint, I, get, uh, I bristle at it sometimes. So I'll stand up for Ryan Day. I'll defend you, Ryan. Come on the show whenever you want to, by the way. Academy Sports and Outdoors is the best place on planet Earth to get your sporting goods supplies. Did you know that? We have many tents we have pretty much anything we want from Academy. I've, I even started to use their parking lots for free Wi-Fi when we storm chase. I haven't cleared that with them. I'm not sure they know that yet, but I do. That's just called brand loyalty. I have gotten some of the most creative emails from you guys that I don't have time to read right now. Since we did the ad read the other night about just the overall connectivity, the relationship between Late Kick and Academy, i enjoy reading those and what you don't know is i take them and i forward them right along to academy and believe it or not they love them even more than i do so it's spring now nashville's thoroughly confused right now it's going to be freezing quite literally zero degrees celsius 32 degrees fahrenheit it's going to be freezing at some point this weekend here but i am told the 70s will return and with it sunshine And with it, outdoor recreational activities and wherever you're living, I promise you, even up in Wisconsin where they've gotten more snow in the past month than we've had in 10 years, it will eventually turn the corner up there. And when it does, don't be the last to react. Go ahead, whether it's in person at Academy Sports and Outdoors or whether it's online at academy.com, anything you need from t-ball to fast pitch softball to baseball to, I don't know, a lot of you love lacrosse, I'm told, whatever you need. Go buy a bike there for all I care. Go buy a tent or go look at the mini tents. Whatever you need, Academy Sports and Outdoors has you covered and they have us covered. Look at these lights. Look at this set. How do you think we afford this? The answer is we don't. Academy does it for us. So thank you to them and thank you to you guys already in advance because I know how you react to these sorts of things for patronizing our sponsors. Brewster, New York, according to my post-it, is tuned in as is Duffield, Virginia, as is San Antonio, Texas, as is Peachtree City, Georgia, home of the National Weather Service in the state of Georgia. So thank you guys wherever you are for tuning in. Let's dive right back into this mailbag. Now this one created a lot of debate today. Question, what is your favorite decade of college football? Mine is the 80s or 90s from Little Hawking, Ohio. Good people in Little Hawking. Big people in Little Hawking big hearts at least. So the 1990s was going to be my initial answer here. But the more I thought about it, I mean, we got really in depth on this today. I think the 2000s is my answer. Obviously, I was not alive to, as a fully functioning adult or even kid, view the 1980s. I don't know other than the history books, what the 70s were like, but I know what the 2000s were like. And I do remember the 90s too, obviously, but I I know, I grew up, I came of age, if you will, in the 2000s. So here's what we had there. I'm going to make my argument. There's going to be a strong 1990s rebuttal, I know that. But my argument for the 2000s being the best decade for college football. We had eight different national champs. LSU in 03 with Saban and 07 with Miles. They repeated. Uh, You had Florida repeat in 06 and 08 under Urban Meyer. Now USC, remember you had that split title in 03. So USC won an AP title in 03, and then they won the BCS in 04. So I guess really we had three uh, multi-year champions, but because there was a split title there, we still had eight different national champions. That's the first. There was just a lot of variety in the way the seasons ended, and I know how much you guys love that. I'm not against it either. We had some classic games. I mean, that 05 Rose Bowl, I didn't even really think about talking about the individual games. You had Tebow... You had the emergence of Urban Meyer as a great college coach. You had the emergence of Nick Saban as a great college coach. I mean, you had Mack Brown win his national championship. You had Bob Stoops win his national championship. Bobby Bowden won another one. But also, think about this. Think about the sport reaching its apex. The 1990s were a great decade, but what the 90s did is it kind of slingshot the sport into the 2000s And there was a massive investment on the part of television, and the television product came a long way in the 2000s. Coverage of the sport immensely grew in the 2000s. You could watch every single one of your team's games. Also, stadium expansion booms happened in every conference. There was this, because of the influx of TV money, there was an investment in facilities, and everyone started upgrading in that vein. But also, our Casey Cosgrove, who works here and does a great job on the tech side. He, he speaks words I've never even heard of before. He brought up a good point. Uh, Trey Scott brought up a good point. How many times have I said that on the show? Not too many. They both brought up a good point today. Casey said, think about what college game day was in the 2000s, and think about what college game day final was in the 2000s. Game day hit its peak in the 2000s. That was must-see TV every Saturday morning, but college football final, with Reese Davis and Mark May and Lou Holtz was, and I'm gonna put this as kindly as I possibly can, a vastly superior product to what is offered today. And I even know a lot of you who hated on that product at the time, retroactively now agree with that and wish you could get that combination back. It was authentic, it just had its own flavor. It It had mass appeal, but its own little cult feel to it. Felt like a community. Kinda felt like our show feels. You either kind of get it or you don't, but most everyone got it. And so it was also appointment viewing. I mean, my day was not complete. I didn't care if it was 2 o'clock in the morning. My Saturday was not complete until I had watched college football final. And they slapped those stickers on the helmets at the end. Then, and only then, had you put a bow on your college football experience. So game day was great there. College football final was great. The television product overall hit its apex. The sport boomed. At every level in the 2000s, we had great teams, we had eight different champions. What was not to love about college football in the 2000s? Oh, and by the way, you had the beginning of what has become the greatest dynasty in the history of the sport, when Nick Saban arrived at Alabama, but you also had USC run off a little mini dynasty. You had Florida under Urban Meyer win two of them in three years. So you had several sort of mini dynasties, then you had the birth of a major dynasty, Also, you know what else sort of came of age in 2000? Online sports betting for college football. Some of you don't care about that, but what you could do in the 90s versus what you started to be able to do, mainly offshore in the 2000s, was a totally different ball game. College fantasy, some of you are into that, but, but betting also really, really turned a corner technologically in the 2000s. So I went with the 2000s. I know the arguments for the 90s, like you're not gonna get me to push back hard on the 90s, but the 2000s for me, best decade in the history of college football. Uh, Let's go on to the next question, which was, yeah, it's this one. This one one I had to think about for a second. Andre from Jonesboro, Georgia asked, what would you think about moving to a plus one system? Have the bowl games as normal, then afterwards you have the 14 playoff. You can reestablish the meaning of bowl games, Plus it's quasi expansion without actually adding more games. Back when we had the BCS and we started to have two camps form in the latter portion of the two thousands, this was one of the camps. There was one camp that said, let's just have a full fledged playoff. And there was another camp that said, let's just have a plus one. Let's keep the same model. But after all the games are played, let's have one more game that pits number one versus number two. At the time, I didn't see much of a need for that. You had very, very rare instances like 04 where an undefeated Auburn, an undefeated power five team did not get a chance to play for a title. Yes, that was a shame. Yes, we needed more than two spots that year. But outside of that, like I've told you before, just because people were complaining, to me did not always signify there was something wrong. People complaining at the end of the year is not the worst thing in the world. I'd rather there be one too few spots than four too many spots. I, I never had a problem with that, but you know I'm a regular season guy. So whatever the postseason was, was whatever the postseason was, but I love bowl season. And so what that plus one model was being proposed to do, I would get anything to have now. Because what that would be, is you would forget about seeding the playoff the day after conference championships. You would just seed bowl season. You would just send teams to their traditional tie-ins so you would, you would be 100% sure to have your Big Ten and your Pac-12 out in the Rose Bowl. You'd have your Big 12 SEC in the Sugar Bowl. You would, the cotton would be what it's supposed to be. The orange would be what it's supposed to be. You would have all the traditional tie-ins. And then after that, if you wanted to have a number one versus number two for a national championship, or I don't care, even see the playoffs, have your one versus four and three versus two after bowl season, I'd give anything for that today. I mean that is so much more preferable to me than expanding the playoff because to me that's that's killing something that doesn't need to get killed and that is the sanctity of the regular season. I, I know the counter argument there we don't need to go down that road. You know why I disagree with the counter argument too. So we don't need to go down that road. But if we were to do that this year, you know if we were to have uh, Bama, Cincinnati, we would have Georgia, Michigan. Instead of having those playoff games there, let's say that we just seeded all of those New Year's Six games. And we put teams wherever they get put. And then after that, we pick your playoff. I I'd prefer that a whole lot more, obviously, because of the lack of television inventory and because of what you call a model that gives more teams, more hope in an expanded 12 team format or whatever the case may be, we're probably not going to go down that road, but Andre boy, now that I know the consequence of having a playoff in the sport that's already decided at least the field being decided before bowl season and knowing what it does to the regular season to some extent and certainly the rest of bowl season, I'd give anything. Yeah, to have that plus one format, I'd definitely be on board with that. Next up is a question about chills. Trevor asks, what are some of your favorite chills moments for various stadiums you've been to? Example, when the snare drum starts as the core walks the team in at Kyle Field. I got some for you. One of them was an actual moment, but a lot of these are just generic events. So I got to take you back to 2017. Uh, Clearly, if this is shot from the eye, Josh, by the way, I was on the field for the ending of that 2017 national championship game with Tua to Devante Smith. And it's a a walk-off between two teams in my market, because I was in Columbus, Georgia at the time. It's up the road in Atlanta. It's like a dream scenario for people who, if you grew up on the Chattahoochee River, which quite literally divides those two states, Alabama and Georgia, You can't ever draw it up any better. Oh, and by the way, you're standing on the field and you've got your iJosh in your hand and I started recording and just hopped in the dog pile. How professional is that, by the way? You're there, you're wearing a professional media credential and your first instinct is to scream, turn your phone on in that order and jump in the dog pile. Fortunately, as far as I know, no broadcast feed footage exists of that ratchet activity on my part. And we did get some good footage out of it on our end so that night speaks for itself but then some other things that do it for me now everyone gets chills in their own unique way but week one kickoffs i don't really care where i am think about what this time of year is we've got we got a hundred whatever days we have until kickoff and you're going through spring then you have your spring game then you know you've got to go through may and june and you just got to do whatever you can to survive as a college football fan because eventually you'll get to July, at which case you get to take a time out for Independence Day, and then you know you got media days coming up. And after media days, it's like a couple of weeks until the pads start popping and fall camp opens. We're good. We're already on the downhill slide by that point. But there's so much talking that happens, and everyone has every one of their expectations mapped out. And you've gone through preview magazine season, and you've gone through talking season, and you've gone through prediction season. But that final countdown when they tee it up, and wherever you are in week one, whether you're sitting at home, whether you're in the stadium, whether you're blessed like we are, and you get to be on the field, that last 30 seconds or so, when those teams start to come out on the field and they tee it up and boom, that whistle blows and toe meets leather and the season is underway. That'll get me, I don't care where I am, that'll get me. Another thing, you could pick any team, I picked Alabama because we haven't shown this team entrance, you could pick any team. Team entrances, we talked about Virginia Tech uh, several times over the past month. The reason I picked Bama is because I've been at, at a number of their games, and I'll, I'll go down to the end zone where they take the field. So what they do is sort of pro wrestling-ish in its own right. They'll come out of their locker room, and they're walking down a tunnel to the entrance to the field, and they do kind of a trail camera shot where if you're in the stadium, you've seen this before in Brighton Stadium. you got Nick Saban. He comes out does that menacing walk down the tunnel. You got a camera following him the whole way. Thunderstruck by ACDC is playing over the loudspeakers. And if you're on the field where I am, you can, you can kind of see up the tunnel. But if you're in section you know, 338, you're just watching on the jumbotron, and and it's, it's literally like Goldberg. When he used to walk from his locker room out to the stadium, it's the same feel. And then there they are and they emerge from the tunnel. It's that element. And you also have the added bonus of knowing oh, I just happen to be witnessing the greatest of all time. So there's that. But team entrances all over the country will do it for me. Um, Here's another one that maybe you think of, maybe you don't. Team stadium arrivals, I love. It was referenced in the actual question. When you get to a stadium early, I get there three hours early, you got about an hour before business really picks up, as good friend of the program, Jim Ross, would say. You're standing there, Stadium's empty, it's not open to the fans yet, and there's that first faint sound of police sirens, which means team arrivals are imminent. And they're coming, and then they pull up, and if you're on the road, you got hostility. If you're at home, you got jubilation, and you're walking through a sea of humanity that is in friendly colors. But from that point forward, it's game on. That last little moment between the time that your ears First, catch that hint of a police siren to the time they pull in. That's when you take your last few deep breaths, and then you know, hey, you only got 12 of them, and one of them's about to go down. You wait your whole year for it. I love that moment, and also rivalry games in general. Try and get to as many of them as I can. Been to the Iron Bowl several times, got to go to OU Texas this past year. But I'll tell you, being at Michigan Stadium, being at the big house in the snow, no less, and watching Michigan break the streak that Ohio state had been running up on them. Being able to witness that in the same year that we saw that red river shootout classic, that never gets old. And the buildup to those games in the environments never get old. So rivalry games, stadium arrivals, team entrances, week one, kickoffs, classic national championship games. Those are some of the chills moments for me. Now I think the comment section is going to light up for this question. So I'll be interested to know your submissions. On this because I'm sure there are some really obvious ones that I just left off for whatever reason Uh, let's get one more question in here this is kind of interesting because I you know to be honest I still don't know where I want to go with it listen to this and let me know what you think the most recent coaching carousel showed that schools are now heavily investing into big-time recruiters for head coaches to mitigate the risk of them leaving to the NFL do you consider other schools more of a danger of poaching big school coaches or the NFL from Melbourne, Australia there. So here's the insinuation. The insinuation is a lot of schools are hiring major recruiters as head coaches because they know the NFL won't want to come take them. And I don't don't know if the correlation and causation are the same here. I don't know if that's been the motivation even between, between needing to fill your role as head coach and then who you're hiring. So Marcus Freeman got the job at Notre Dame, very good recruiter. I don't know that Notre Dame looked around and said, "Let's give it to Marcus because the NFL will never come for him cuz he's a recruiter." Like I don't think that's the thinking. I don't think USC looked at Lincoln Riley and said, "I think we want Riley cuz he can recruit and therefore the NFL will never want him." I think maybe you you may happen to be a good recruiter. It's probably one of the prerequisites to get those jobs, but you can be a really really good football mind and a good recruiter, too. In fact, some of the best programs in America are led by a combination of both in the same mind. So I don't know that that's the case, but I think I've always viewed the biggest threat to your head coach leaving as being another college program. So I think over the course of history, we've seen far more coaches leave college jobs to go to other college jobs than we have leaving college jobs to go to the NFL. I mean, you can virtually count on one hand how many high-profile coaches have left college to go to the NFL, and you've watched it work out. Conversely, in college, it works out all the time. And we just saw multiple examples of it this past cycle. Who in the world expected Brian Kelly to leave Notre Dame to go to LSU? Anyone who ever talked about him leaving talked about, I wonder if the Giants want Brian Kelly. I wonder if, what if the Chargers will look at Brian Kelly. No, it was LSU that ended up taking him. For that matter, I wonder if the Cowboys will take Lincoln Riley. No, it was USC that came and took Lincoln Riley. So I don't know that that's what they're prioritizing, or if they are, I don't know that that's the reason they're prioritizing it. What I think programs are knowing that they have to prioritize is a good recruiter, or at the very least, a guy who can put together a dynamite recruiting staff, but he's gotta understand marketing for the future of NIL. Uh, He's gotta be a very, very good manager of an organization because of so many different aspects that are now part of a college football organization, but he's gotta be a good navigator too got to be a good leader, I guess is another word for that, because there's so many added things on your plate that didn't even exist five years ago in the sport, much less 50 years ago. So yeah, if you're a good recruiter and, and you feel more college, yeah, maybe that, maybe that precludes a lot of NFL eyeballs from casting their gaze towards you. Is that the reason you hired that guy? I don't know if that's necessarily always correlating the way it may seem. It just so happens to be that way sometimes. Look, I appreciate you guys watching show number 250, and if you're listening on podcast, Appreciate that as well make sure you're doing the simple things for us that's all we need you to do show remains free remains easily accessible the simple things subscribe on the podcast subscribe to the YouTube channel Colin keeps pointing out to me we're above 90,000 subs here and I'm told they send us a fancy plaque when we reach a thousand subs right Colin like some fancy silver thing so I don't know where we'll put it but we we found room for the balloon tonight so certainly we can find room for some actual hardware hundred thousand subs. I mean, we can get that before the season starts. So let's try and do that. Go take your sister's computer. Go take your mom's account. Just subscribe. They'll never know the difference. Anymore. And we'll be all the better for you. Thank you so much for watching. Have yourselves a great start to the weekend. We'll be back here same time Sunday night. Until then, take care and God bless. You.